Welcome back to another episode of Our Trumpet Life, a podcast focused on teaching, learning, and sharing all things trumpet in a positive atmosphere. I'm your co-host, Ben McCarthy, alongside Derek Watson, David Moore, and Chris Navarrete. Today, we are excited to be joined by my former teacher in trumpet pedagogue, Judith Saxton. For those of you who don't know, Ms. Saxton is not only an extremely accomplished and versatile performer, but she is also one of the most active forces in the trumpet community. During her illustrious career, which is still going strong, she's given recitals and masterclasses all over the world. She was the principal trumpet for the Hong Kong Philharmonic, Wichita Symphony, and Chicago Chamber Orchestra. She is a certified teacher of the Alexander Technique and will be presenting for the upcoming Alexander Technique International Conference and a board member of the Eastern Music Festival, where she will be returning this summer. You can see her as a clinician at this year's Virtual International Trumpet Guild Conference. There is so much more. The list goes on and on and on. But we want to thank you, Ms. Saxon, for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to come and talk trumpet with us. Yay! My pleasure. Uh, totally. Especially to deal with four people all at once is kind of really cool. It really is. It's... Uh... Like I was, we were talking before about just being being in touch with people again. You know, this past year has been difficult, I think, for everyone. And it's amazing what technology has allowed us to do. And this is just, it truly is an amazing thing to be able to gather and, and discuss something that we all love. I was going to, uh, I had an idea to write a little poem or book or I have no idea, but it was going to be called The Orchid because at the beginning of the pandemic last year, these gorgeous orchids, they both were blooming at the beginning. And then they started blooming again last week. And I was like, wow, <laughs> it's like the orchid that cool. came full circle. And then I started thinking about what I would write. And I was like, that's it. The title says it all. <laughs> it was very existential kind of thing, but so much has occurred for everyone. And it's been talked about, but there's so much that we've, have been able to accomplish, but it's certainly been a time of trial for everyone. And everyone is grieving whether they recognize it or not, because grief isn't just over losing a person, it's losing anything. And when you start making a list, it can be many things. So not to start out so dark, except that a lot of people want to, especially I think in the trumpet world, they want to be like, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to be positive, blah, blah, blah. And Positive is good, but kind of recognizing the backside, the darker side of yourself and embracing that gives you more of yourself. And so I don't think we need to take a moment of silence. I'm just saying like, yeah. it's been a lot of a year, even though many of us have done next to nothing in that year in terms of outside accomplishments, maybe, or that's what we may feel. But like I said, when I was writing down stuff, so I remember to mention, I was like, oh, I've done that. I've done that. You know, I've done these little things. They just have not been heralded. Not that they're heralded, but there haven't been. There's not an acknowledgement because we're not in community the same way. So community and connection. This is, I think, what undergirds actually not just myself, but my pedagogy, too. Yeah. And that's actually something we would we were thinking we'd open with because there's, there really is a lot that we can discuss, but I thought getting into your teaching philosophy and Alexander technique and what that is, and just kind of discussing from there. I've had to write up a teaching philosophy a few times, you know, <laughs> of course we all do when we're in search of 
of especially university positions. But I'm just going to leave all that where it was on the paper. And that was the most daunting of everything when I was just jotting down your questions. I was like, oh, you know, simply because it seems like a daunting question. And then I thought, well, what am I about in relationship to music and students? And of course, the community of the audience. What, are, what am I about? In other words, what do I, you're asking me about my philosophy. So what do I bring that is, we all bring something unique, right? So what do I bring to the table in those relationships? Myself to the student, myself to the music, and then that triangle right there. And then myself to the student, the music, and the audience, which will be there, whether it's a juried audience or an audience of parents and people at church that I'll love you no matter what, always, or if it's an audience of a competition. So there's, we have both a triangle and a circle already. <laughs> there's a lot of interconnection that is, I think, necessary to kind of acknowledge when talking about a teaching philosophy, I would hope that almost everybody tries to meet the students where they are. But what I find is, you know, I was trained as a music educator. That was my training initially in my undergraduate. My degree is music education. So I've always been, and if any of you are music education majors, I think at least one of you, you know, there's a lot of classes. <laughs> and in order for me to feel not like I was being overwhelmed with stuff, I thought I'll never use. I actually was very intrigued by the psychology of teaching classes. And then when I started teaching, I kind of, and I taught, what did I taught? I think I taught like middle school, they called it junior high back when I was doing it. Some beginners at like music stores, you know, how everybody starts out teaching. And then I moved on. I didn't do a whole lot of high school, early high school. And then I actually got some college teaching. So it kind of, I was always interested in the students' thoughts while they were playing. I, that's what I was interested in. Because I, re I don't know why I recognized it. Maybe because of myself, I don't know why. But I recognized what they were thinking affected everything, how they were using their bodies. I'm thinking of the little kids I taught with their feet swinging off the floor. They, didn't, they weren't even big enough to meet the floor. And, you know, what were they thinking? Some of them you could tell they were somewhere else if they were really young. But even so, the, the middle schoolers, you know, they struggled with dot eight sixteenths. You know, I remember having a couple books. The Walter Bueller book was so good. And I remember su like supplementing that with by times by seven when you got to dotted notes because the students would freak out. So I was like, why is that? So I was always interested in stepping back and finding out what wasn't solid in their foundation. And the thing is, people talk about fundamentals on the trumpet. And I probably have alluded to this in other podcasts, but I'm interested in the fundamentals of the fundamentals on the trumpet. Our foundational ways of thinking and what we bring to the table 
you know, a lot of times students have a lot going on. I remember all the way through all my teaching, especially having an interest in at least acknowledging there was a life outside of trumpet because a lot of them had so much stuff they were dealing with. So when I knew that I could bring more compassion, but I could also shape the lesson in a way that I chose to try to be as human as possible. Also recognizing, cause I'm a pragmatist, that that would get the most done. <laughs> I mean, you know, extending my trust and listening to them really closely to what they're saying and how they're saying it, or if they're not saying anything, what's their body language saying, just listening to them and then crafting a lesson that would be able to hook them. Cause you know, you're going, I'm thinking of the younger students, actually any student, but you're going to go in and out in terms of your confidence levels and your ability levels. And, you know, there's so much going on. So, so I've always been interested in the students' connections with what they have going on in their life and also how they think. And that those foundations kind of informed how I then would address, you know, dotted eights and sixteenths or double tonguing or anything. And I, I also kind of recognized maybe because of my singing background that, I mean, I recognized some things that worked for me and seemed to work for everybody. And as I traveled globally, it, it still worked for everybody, you know. If you sing, even the shape of your oral cavity can really help the notes come out if you're singing at pitch for those that are women or before the voice changed. Um, or if not, I have a thing called whistle tones where you whistle, not, but you put a little more, you put a little more of the tone in it. And that oral cavity gives you those pitches that maybe you struggle for and you don't I was rarely a person that wanted to talk about the tongue placement because that is so relative to their experience and their mouth and their face and their everything, especially most of the students I've taught have been for the majority of my career. Time-wise, I've taught students under the age of 25. I've taught everybody, but, and so they're still developing, you know, the frontal cortex is even developing until you're 25. I mean, but also physically, so that's changing. I remember when I had braces, I got the braces. The doctor said, we're going to have to break your jaw. Your jaw's too small. I came back from May to August and I was good to go. No breaking of the jaw. Everything had changed totally. And even when I got my braces, I couldn't play for like three days. So I remember this was very traumatic. I was taken off all the first parts in the county band and put on third. And in three more days, I could play because I didn't care. You know, I've always been like that. But anyway, so things change and I'm not in your mouth. And a lot of people don't have a concept of how to talk about what's in their mouth. So I don't talk about that, but we can talk about language and, you know, we can whistle and I've even taught students how to whistle if they don't know how you can hum, you can buzz, you can do all these things, put your lips together. I mean, there was, I remember there was a month at Wichita State where I had I can't remember what it's called, a gum resection, which is no fun. Um, it had receded through some hereditary things. And then I had to have more gum put on. And so I couldn't even like play at all. And so I remember I was fine with that because I could still sing. 
that's for me the primary. And then I realized in lessons after about three weeks, I could put my lips together and I could go like that. And that was so helpful to the students. This was Wichita State. We're not talking, you know, young students. These were very accomplished lead players, great players. But I remembered when I could do that, and I remembered that helped them so much because we could all remember that there has to be that buzz. Everybody talks about blowing, everybody talks about singing, everybody talks about wind, air, tongue placement. I mean, but very few remember that the lips have to go together, you know, this vibration thing. So yeah, I don't know if that's making any cohesive sense, but the connections to themselves and what they're thinking and what they're focusing on and how they're focusing on it. I've always been interested in because many students over focus in the classical world I've found it's trained into us. And I don't want to say just classical. I'm being horribly generic, whatever the word is, general generality. So the focus aspect, I've also really enjoyed recognizing, acknowledging that as part of my teaching philosophy, because it it's an important part of teaching. You can teach, you can drop these pearls of wisdom, but number one, if they're not ready, number two, if they can't hear them, number three, if there's no understanding of what those words even mean. I mean, I often stop and say, so what did I just say? And you know, how many 50% of what I'm saying now and of what you teach goes unheard. So you know, the repetition, of course, but also looking for the eyes glazing over, watching the whole body and where they are. <clears throat> that was always interesting way before I did any Alexander. And also because I I am goal-oriented and I knew I could get there quicker if I um, knew how their brain was working. And I was just really fascinated by that, really fascinated by that. So that's kind of undergirded my pedagogy. And as you have already heard me say, before I traveled internationally, not before I traveled, but before I lived internationally, I guess I acknowledged that in every culture, brains work the same. Like I knew that from Jacobs, I think, from Arnold Jacobs, you know, how the brain message actually gets to your chops. And so because I just, I'm I'm writing this uh, five or six page essay for, and I wrote it down so I remember, the newest book coming out on Jacobs, his artistic and pedagogical legacies in the 21st century. So what we're doing 25 years on, those yeah. of us carried his, and of course we've made it our own, but what he gave me was the scientific credence, the credibility for myself. Nobody asked me, well, some people have asked me, why do you think you know that? But I don't give them any time, any of my time. But I mean, I just know that it's based on how the body and the brain work. And so knowing that if you don't, if you can't sing, that's fine. You can hum and that really helps. And you can do the whistle tones and that really helps. And you can step out with your foot and your hand and that gives you the timing and the confidence. And you know, why did Chickowitz sit in his lesson and go like this every single week? And of course, then you end up seeing that in your mind's eye And there goes the wind. Thank God it's letting go. Finally, it's not compressing, you know, so that's brain and body connection. That's somatic learning, which, you know, now I'm 
I'm a registered somatic movement educator as well as a music educator. That simply means that I am aware that the body contributes. I've talked a lot about thinking and where students are, but what's fascinating is as I got working more and more with university and collegiate level students, I found that, again, huge generality, but a lot of folks were not connected with their body at all, or they were trying to get rid of it or suppress it, or they were angry at it, or they felt betrayed by it. I mean, I myself have experienced every one of those feelings over and over and over and over and over and struggled with them. So the longer you live, the more you realize you're not alone. And of course, I saw that in students and I was like, ah, okay. So that brain-body connection, the other thing I like to say is that of course, mindfulness is a huge term now, but what about bodyfulness? You know, mindfulness and bodyfulness. So we have so many more resources if we're willing to take the time to settle in to our bodies. That's probably more came about probably when I started studying Alexander, not when I started studying it, probably way later a few years before I started teaching it, after I'd been teaching for 20 or 25 years. I mean, I really, you know, saw that happening around the world. And I realized, ah, this is, this is not just a Chicago thing or a Wichita thing or a North Carolina thing. You know, this is happening everywhere. Oh, and also I wrote down um, excellence, not perfection. You'll never hear me use the word again. There's that word never, but I try strive mightily to not use the word perfection or perfect. Uh, words are very important. We learn that especially more in Alexander, which again, I'd already kind of embraced that. And we listen very carefully um, as Alexander teachers. Um, it's a very wonderful, broad quality of listening that is not necessarily found in every trumpet studio of a music teacher listening to a student. It's a different quality of listening, but how people say things. And of course, thought, word, action. That's in every major religion. That's in every major pedagogical book on how to play the trumpet. You know, and it, of course with Alexander, how you think is how you move, how you think is how you do any activity. You know, you're linking your thinking. Yeah, I think I've babbled a little bit. So does any make, do you want me to clarify anything or does that make sense or is it too, woo? No, that's great. I actually had a question going back to the um, brain-body connection. Is that what you mean when you said the fundamentals of the fundamentals? Is how you how people are thinking about things? So here we are sitting, all of us. And if we can all just feel our feet on the floor and our sit bones in the seat, we can go back and forth and find our sit bones then a different quality has already appeared on the Zoom call. You may or may not be able to recognize it. Sometimes it's like, what's she, what she talking about? But that connection of when we're in our body, meaning we are fully present to the body's aches and pains and nerves or wanting to scoot or just no energy. But when we're in our body and 
we go to play, it's easy. Some people stay only in their body. Some people stay only in their head. We're always trying, like everything in life, to find that balance of the musical mental story, right? And the tonus and activation needed, but only to the point where it's needed and not in excess. So we're, we're striving for balance within the body, but we're, we're, what I'm interested in by the fundamentals of the fundamentals is the connection that when we're using our whole self with our brain and body connected, we already have access to these resources that we sometimes cut off. And so those fundamentals of using our self to play gives us so much efficiency and we don't have to work nearly as hard as we think we do. We still have to engage, absolutely. But we don't have to work to do something when we're aligned with, as you very well know, the timing of it, the rhythm, so critical. And when we're aligned with the clarity of the pitch, I remember doing a master class. It could have been anywhere. I won't say where. And I was a graduate student doing the Francais Sonatine. And I actually hadn't ever given that to a student. It, it was when I was at Wichita State and just hadn't been one of the ones I'd given out. So I was not super familiar with it. I knew it off recordings a little bit, but I remember going into the master class and, you know, it was all over, you know, I think that's the tune. And I remember asking the student to sing it. I had already had it figured out in my head how it went. And he was unable to produce the pitches in any octave from one to the next. And I was like, okay, well, you know, and you know what? In a short 10 minutes, we got him working on six or seven pitches and then things were flying out the trumpet because yes, you absolutely need that connection of the specific pitch to make things fly out the trumpet. You can work your butt off and do it with your head shut off <laughs> and it might still come out the trumpet. It's going to sound squeegee. It's going to take so much extra work. You're not going to be able to play forever. You know, when I was at the School of the Arts, I was always doing 95 million things and in charge of like the whole brass day and everything. And so I remember colleagues coming up and saying, how did you do that brass quintet concert? I did you warm up today? I mean, what's your practice regimen? And I was like, unfortunately, you know, I'm not practicing very much. I got three minutes in on the horn before I played. But, and I relied on that far too long. May Mr. Chikowitz rest in peace. I acknowledge <laughs> that was not the way to go. But I, I could do it because I had such an incredible clarity of message. I had a very efficient approach. I had trained in this for 30 years. And I, I, I've seen it myself. I, of course, witnessed it all over. Yeah, the fundamentals of being 100% whole before you come to the trumpet. You know, and that's so easy to invite, you know, in a lesson. Again, I just found ways of just indicating how much we're holding without knowing it. So 
And that is simply to take the weight of the instrument. Or I, I said, give me the weight of the instrument. I put my arm underneath their elbow. This is, of course, pre-COVID. <laughs> and um, give me the whole weight of the instrument because at least it goes from here. If you've got a good setup and you're not doing something like that, mm-hmm. you know, all the weight goes down past your wrist to your elbow. And then it transfers not just here right? It goes all the way into the huge diamond back muscles in your back, your traps, your latissimus dorsi, all these huge, massive muscles that are designed to hold up anything. We've got a huge wing spread, right? We're shaped just like birds in the back. So that's how we hold up the trumpet. But when, and the students would be like, I'm giving you everything. And I'd I'd have like a feather weight in in my elbow. And I was like, let your arm just drop, just drop. Give me the whole weight of the trumpet. Really? The whole weight. And they were like, oh, okay. And then, you know, to have them play then, it would be like, we, it was so free of work that it felt unfamiliar. And of course that's scary and all that other stuff, but you can work through that. And that's just one way to indicate that that trans, your body is designed, you know, not to hold things up forever. Of course, we do a thing that the body is not designed for. We cave people weren't playing the trumpet. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they were picking up a conch every once in a while, but you know, so, but the body is designed to hold things. And so if we allow it to work as it's designed, that's the other thing, the fundamentals of the fundamentals. That's the other part of talking about get there. Yeah. And that's that bodyfulness, right? The being awareness of the, of your body. Yes, Derek. And also the fact that we have so many resources that, you know, it's just like when you're learning, you don't know what you don't know. So when a teacher can shed some light on, did you know that um, there's eight bones in your wrist that all move and they're little round pebbles? Oh, think about that. Did you know that when you reach out, it's your pinky that allows the arm, it's your pinky that does the reaching, not the if you would think, oh, I'm reaching with this pointer finger. So when we start to use the body the way that's designed down that ulnar side, there's a different quality of use that we are then, oh, we literally are shedding more light on how our body is already magnificently designed, which are these resources I talk about that we can access that's the body. Yeah, that's part of the body part. I think one of the illustrations or concepts that always hit home to me was was what you were talking about, you know, feeling, you know, the muscles when, in your chair when you're sitting, feeling your heels on the ground, especially when standing. Because I, I remember always having that issue of wanting to lean forward when I played. And it wasn't until we discussed that where you're really feeling the connection to the ground and, and anchoring in the ankles that that clicked for me. I remember for years that the evolution of where, you know, what I saw students needing across the country. Um, and for many years, it was grounding. It was simply grounding. People really needed grounding. Mm-hmm. I actually found those that were from like rural places and country places that hiked, they actually literally were more grounded because being a city you're not even on the actual ground a lot of times you're walking on and that's not woo-woo that's fact (laughs) so yes 
Ben, I remember doing that for a number of years, that whole grounding thing, and I still do it. We did it just now, you know, mm-hmm. feel your peak. So just, yeah, it's just kind of literally broadening out who we are when we're playing. We are not only just a whole body, but we're an energetic. You know, you walk in a room and you, some rooms, you know, something's going on here. There's energy. That's what we are. Life is energy. Movement is energy. Energy is definitely music. Trumpet is definitely energy. You know, we're a very energetic instrument. If you try to play the trumpet without much energy, whew, that's a tough way to practice. <laughs> you know, it's hard to have be energized when you're not getting the social connection. And yeah, so everything's energy. And if you can get connected through these bodily uh, ways of finding the ground or different ways of being aware that's super helpful yeah that was that was always something that i really admired about you is the energy that you brought to performances that you brought to lessons and actually just in any interaction that you had with students that i observed it was always fully engaged and very energetic and one of the things that we actually wanted to ask you concerning that was how how do you bring that out in your students when they might have more of like social anxiety or just even lack of stage presence? Like, how do you get that out of a student? First of all, everybody, think of your favorite players. Everybody has a different energy. For me, I mean, I'm a generation older, so I think of like Bud and Tim Morrison and, you know, Mike Sachs. I mean, we all think of Mike Sachs, you know, Phil Smith. And of course I could go on and on. I don't mean to stop there, but they have different energies, right? Phil Smith is like, and Bud's like, you know, they all have a different energy. So number one, it's not about, I didn't think you meant this. I just want to be clear Mm -hmm. that that it's not about um, putting on any false energy because that wears you down really a ton and it doesn't translate into communication. So that's why people can go out and play flawlessly and not advance, whether it be an audition or a competition or in juries, the teachers are like, you know, we didn't, I'm sure we've all gotten those at some point in our career. Not sure you felt the connection on that A flat major scale, (laughs) you know, whatever it was. So finding that student's well of font of 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 energy is i think it really goes back to creating trust within the studio we had mentor partners at the school of the arts um even some young young people i remember you were with nico weren't you i was with sumner for a while i thought oh, okay and then maybe i did transfer to nico i can't remember there was you know a large at the school of the arts especially we had this mix of like high school, you know, ninth graders along with 24 year olds. (laughs) So we had to find a way to make that work. Mm -hmm. But also we, I knew there was things that they would be able to get from one another. And so it's kind of finding, honoring each person's way of being. And I found that in the end and towards like the end of the school of the arts, or I should say after all this teaching I had done, clear structure 
when going through all aspects of performing helped everybody who had any issue at any point, whether it be just not preparing to the last minute or over-preparing and how many chops, everybody has some challenge that they deal with in the process of getting ready for a piece or a recital. And so that clear structure of exactly when things were going to happen and how much was uh, your, your dress rehearsal was gonna be the day before, just clear structure allowed each student to find their best self by the clarity of the intent, by knowing what they were going to have to do. So that's not a small thing, I think, is the clarity of expectation of that performance, of that uh, competition. And then, of course, we have to get beyond that. But I do want to mention that. I think that's something that's not always considered. Um, and students don't always have all of the skills necessary to perform. They're not just trumpet skills at all. So, you know, Ben, we practiced walking out and bowing and doing it in a way that first we faked it till we make it in that sense, we're not playing yet, so we can do that. Um, so we practiced every single aspect. We practiced warming up backstage where nobody could hear us in a cold room. We practiced every aspect, whether it be through auditions class or in master class. We practiced everything related to performing so that at least all of that was addressed. Okay, so let's talk about performance anxiety or getting out that well and that font of that student's energy. Well, there's 95 books on it. I, I own most of them <laughs> because you know, I always struggled with it. And so I kind of, I mean, I wrote a whole paper on it for Northwestern. I mean, it was my, it was my thing to like study performance anxiety in, in the way I was then, which was very focusy. <laughs> and so you can read, there's many ways of talking about this. Many pedagogues talk about it and I don't pretend to know any more than anybody. I could just bring my experience to it. And that is a fundamental belief in your voice that you have something to say that's unique. I reread part of my website before this call because I wrote it a long time ago and I thought, you know what? That is still really, really true. What I wrote on my website and it's, you know, my job as a teacher is to amplify your voice, to help you find what you can do and to allow you to feel the comfort, to give you the sense of permission to be vulnerable, to not just hit the notes. Please don't just hit the notes. Do not play for that P word, perfection. Find the musical phrase because that is your Valhalla. That is the way to the key to your soul singing out the trumpet. Whether you are that amazing, amazing, amazing jazz player who has um, schizophrenia and he looks like he's like this. And then Tom Harrell. Yeah, unless, if you're Tom Harrell. But when he picks up that trumpet, the spark comes mm -hmm. alive. So it doesn't matter your outward appearance all the time, you know, but what's your voice? We hold one of the most powerful instruments. We literally change molecular structures when we play and it's not through force, right? It's just through the quality and the purity and the compact ringingness of that vibration. So we have so much that we bring 
to our, we amplify, like it's very visual what we do, which is an amplifier. And so finding that student's sweet spot, whatever it may be. And, you know, maybe they're really good at this. Great. Well, let's just build up that confidence and that ability to be vulnerable within the studio and within that student. And, you know, for many, it's a, it's a struggle. It's a struggle. That's, that is the struggle of becoming, in a sense, solid in yourself. We're never solid, but, you know, grounded in yourself. And the way our, our education is structured, you know, we're in school right when we're not solid in ourselves, you know, 13 to 21. That's like we're changing just about every aspect that could be possibly changed. <laughs> so, you know, that latitude and compassion, trying to extend that to a student. I do a lot of meditation and prayer. And so obviously that's going to come into what I teach. Yeah. <laughs> Even more so now than, than I used to. I think that it's it's really refreshing to hear you say that stuff because it's not a common thing. Uh, it's not a common. Well, it's not. There's a lot of trumpet studios where that's not the the main the the main focus. And you know, I'm the kind of person who you mentioned earlier. You don't tend to think of where is your tongue in your mouth, and I am one of those people. But the this idea of of uh, awareness becoming comfortable meditation and being aware of what you're really looking for. I find the same thing in those really minute details, like where's my tongue in my mouth. And that's how I have gained a better understanding of my body, how I think, how I learn. And, um, and those getting into that, positive mindset I do it through the those little checks of is my tongue in this spot is my whatever you know those small details and um but it's really refreshing to hear you say that you're looking to help the students find the ways that work for them to get to that brain body connection absolutely I'm obviously a verbal person many trumpet players are not many are male and that isn't always the top uh striking thing in, a, in, in men. So yeah, I've always had to be very aware of other ways of learning and taking in information and, and meeting those folks where they are while encouraging them to take what they do know and broaden it out. So I had a question. How do you avoid paralysis by analysis? Because because I totally am on the same page with you, because I think the same way, Derek, all of us agree with this concept of mind and body and connecting the two is and finding that balance. But oftentimes I've shot myself in the foot and, uh, you know, uh, how, how do you deal with that? What, what is the strategy? Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing. Or, uh, Jacobs will always talk about. So you know, be here now is one thing. When you're analyzing, you're in the word thinking part of the brain, which is not the part of the brain that makes music. So I, in my studio, whether it be here online or wherever, I create an atmosphere of music 
from the beginning, like we're singing, we're dancing, we're clapping, we're counting off, we're conducting, we're doing all of those things all the time. We do not play a note, right? Da, 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 da. We don't just pick it up and play it. Two, three. Da, 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 da. So I'm giving them visual. I'm giving them, you know, this whole four beats. There is so much music impetus that that tends, in my experience, to override the other grasping or clutching or very common tendency for all of us to be analyzing what am I doing. So I think music is the bridge, actually, but consistently from the beginning, from before the student, like I have taught a number of uh, adult students, like, you know, we're talking viable, great 30, 40 year old players, not, I've also taught the older comeback players, but I'm talking, these are great freelancers who want to come in and say, what's happening? And, you know, before we play the trumpet, even with them, I'm like, so I listen to what they say, I watch what they're doing. And when they go to put the trumpet up, almost always I find that that if we pause initially, you might think, oh my God, my mind would go racing, but we're pausing with a purpose. We're pausing in order to not go into our habits, to allow that blossoming of a connection to actually happen. So analysis by paralysis needs the sacrosanct quality of space and time around the music capsule that you're making for the student. So that pause gives you this very potent, powerful space and time, which then music comes out of. And all of that is kind of anathema to the thinking wordy part of the brain. Did that make sense? You're doing more, do you need more clarification? Cause maybe I'm being too. No, no, I'm just thinking of individual experiences and then I'm just trying to connect those dots uh, at least with my past experiences and um, trying to I love the idea of using music as a bridge for those things because now instead of thinking you know somebody explained it to me where you put your your thinking hat on and then your performance hat on and you're compartmentalizing your mind but I do love this idea where just think music and all that, you know, it, it will start, you, you see the bigger picture here and uh, it, it, co it totally aligns with what you said earlier, where as a, as a teacher, you're thinking of what the student is thinking of. You're thinking of like where you are and then the overall audience and you got that trifecta thing going on. It's So when I taught Alexander, like I was going through training, it's very intense. It's three solid years. And then I came out of training and I was teaching. Uh, part of the teaching was uh, to be a teacher in Alexander Technique. So I taught all kinds of students, non-musicians, vocalists, drama, whatever. And But when I then went around the country and was doing master classes for trumpet and brass primarily, I thought, I need to find a way to make this Alexander stuff work for me. I'm primarily a musician. 
I know I'm a human, and that's what Alexander's addressing, but in these places, I'm a musician. And that's the, that's the currency. And what I noticed, it wasn't, didn't take a rocket science to notice that the minute the student freed up, so to speak, and lost their rigidity or, or gained their ground and their whole selves, of course, they'd start to move a little bit to the music. It became, it was natural. So I was like, oh, okay. So I thought, yeah, music really is a bridge between this whole Alexander Technique art of rediscovering your innate coordination, which is already present and stripping away habits and undoing extra work, which is opposite of how we learn to play the trumpet and how we type A trumpet players mostly are. Ooh, let's do more, let's focus in, let's like work harder. <laughs> so, but I also found as a singer, it was extremely gratifying to me to see that just heaping on every musical element, you know, from the rhythm to the, everything we just talked about, just gave such permission in that feel that we created for the student to just hop on the merry-go-round and there they were going. They didn't even have to do anything. They were just sitting on the horse. And then they go, okay, well, that can't just be it because that's too easy. <laughs> so then there's that issue of, you know, uh, convincing them that, no, it really is that. <laughs> the discipline is to pause and put in the music. That's a huge discipline. No one wants to do that, I've found, of every age. We trumpet players have great discipline. We instilled in us through our legions of teachers throughout our career, starting from the beginning. And, you know, a lot of this stuff seems like you're walking in the clouds and, oh, it's like really easy and blah, blah, blah. But the discipline is putting the trumpet down, pausing, putting those musical elements in place, every single one. Can you hear the pitch? Can you hum it? If not, don't bother picking up that piece of inanimate metal because nothing's going to come out that's pleasant to listen to. You know, just pausing, waiting, establishing that first, recognizing everybody wants to go, oh, let me play the trumpet. Oh, it's a shiny bright piece of object. It's a shiny object. That's the discipline is away from the trumpet, being a musician first and putting yourself, it's like putting on headphones, you know, now I'm going to be a musician, then I'm going to play the trumpet. You know, it's, it's getting yourself in that whole soundscape of everything. I mean, I remember coaching like jazz, you know, having to coach people how to play jazz, you know, style. And I always had an entire jazz band rhythm section on every rest. You know, there's like all of that. That's why I can play in the pocket. That's why you can play these rhythms. And it's like, I recognize that that imagination, that's the other big thing. I can't believe I didn't get to that yet, which is part of the discipline that's often not present in enough teaching is getting the imagination of the students to really be lit and active and willing to say, yeah, I could play it like a turtle. I mean, yes, let's play it like a turtle. I mean, just using your imagination is so imperative because that's where the trust comes through. That's where it comes in. 
And that also takes discipline because it's not easy. You have to like go into a different part of your head, right? It's the creative side. It is creating. It's imagining. That's the musical side too. And, but that takes discipline is what I'm trying to say. That's what I'm trying to get across. You know, what, what you're talking about right now, going back to your example with uh, with your student that was working on Francais Sonatine, it, it's amazing to me as, as a jazz player. I mean, and, I, and I, do, I do both. I have degrees in both. But for me, the, the mechanism to be an improviser, you have to be able to take what you hear in your head and put it out the horn. It's not just, I mean, you have to understand theory, chord scale relationships, all that. But if you're improvising a solo and you're thinking, I'm going to start on the third or the five chord here and I'm going to play a two five pattern here that then by the time you've thought that up, the music's already like the chord changes have already moved by. So it's, it's really hearing this in here putting out the horn and for me i was always comfortable doing that in a you know in in a jazz setting and what's weird it's it's like a weird brain switch i struggled doing that when i would be performing classical lit and it was almost like a very technical thing i'm like oh i'm too sharp here i'm too flat or i i i i didn't tongue that note hard enough and i just felt like um, not not that I had unsuccessful performances, but I never felt satisfied. And it, it wasn't until uh, relatively recently that I started thinking about, okay, well, what is it that I'm doing in this jazz setting that I feel so comfortable with? What is the difference? Why do I feel comfortable here? Why don't I feel comfortable here? And so I've started, I mean, what you were just talking about, singing through you know, singing through an etude or, um, but, uh, but also taking the etude and playing it, trying to play it three different ways, getting different types of musical gestures out of it. And it's made a huge impact. And, and it reminds me of, you know, the, um, the inner game of tennis where the, you know, the, the author's talking about just acting out the motion for his students and, instead of, well, uh, you know, explaining every technical detail, I do think it is important to know that. But for me, the freeing moment was when I just tried to replicate what I was hearing in my head. And I think that that's so, that's, that's just so important. And it really resonated with me. What you said was exactly what you struggled with. You, you said everything. You said you judged yourself. You felt the light was on you, shining, and you were incapacitated to access your uh, freedom in jazz, which the whole genre gives you. And I remember not, you know, struggling with personally, like maybe playing a high A flat out of the blue or something. And then I would think, well, heck, I could play a C sharp on a B flat trumpet in the jazz band and sound awesome. And I'd be like, okay, what? And I was like, I was just letting that come through. Like, can we just transfer the fact that we are still trumpet and it's still music? But yeah, there's a huge, often a big disconnect for many is all I'm saying between like the freedom, which of course, you know, freedom within a huge structure in jazz. But I mean, the freedom of jazz, meaning like I composed by just improvising and writing it down and very lazy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's all it is. That's all composition is anyway, but there's so many choices. I choose to honor what I've done in that moment in the recording, even though I'm like, I could have done this, my honor. But in jazz, you can take it anywhere 
if something goes this direction, then you go, okay, I'm going to go with that. And then I'll go here. But in classical music, there's this printed page, which we feel very blocked into. And I'm so pleased that, yes, you found that connection, which again is a musical bridge. It was for you. And I think it is for everyone around the globe to bring in your skills and resources that you already had, bring them into the light when you're on the stage in, in classical music. And really, you know, forget about the story of classical music because those that want to keep to that story have a problem. And, and you know, that's just a story. Everything is a story, but I mean, that's a story. So yeah, you can find your freedom in your voice using your skills you bring in from jazz. How fantastic is that? And the fact that you learned it relatively recently is beautiful because all the struggles you went through have made you more awesome now. Everything that we go through in the past is fuel and fodder and fire for our amazing playing right now. The, the concept of discipline kept going on in my mind as you were talking about it and how, you know, how you apply that not only in a performance setting, but also in a practice setting. And I feel often like that's where my disconnect comes in with discipline because, you know, I get into the practice room and there's all these thousand different things that I want to work on, uh, whether it's just recital music or if it's fundamentals. And so then I just attack, attack, attack. And you're talking about the discipline, but not like the discipline to take a pause and to, to make those connections, to feel the mind body connection. And often, you know, if I start off with it at some point during the practice session, it's gone. And that's what I find difficult. You know, it's keeping the presence of mind throughout the entirety of a practice session or even in a performance. It's easy for, you know, one mistake to just all of a sudden set you off. And then you're thinking analytically and you're getting out of that headspace. So I was wondering if there's anything that you do to help like snap you back into that presence of mind while you're doing those things. Uh, you said a couple things. I was interested by, I remember Susan Slaughter starts the International Women Brass Conference every other year when they have that, by coming out and playing a huge wrong note, usually in pictures or something like that. And she's like, there we go, we got that out of the way, so now we can have fun and make some music, you know? I mean, in her way, she would not say it like that, but you know, so that's the point, isn't it? Like, I remember learning Fairly early on in my career, again, it was pictures, it was the Great Gate of Kiev. I was probably 22. I was playing principal in the Kenosha Symphony, the small orchestra, but we had a phenomenal music director who went on to work as the Associate of National Symphony, Elizabeth Schulz. We were doing the end of um, pictures at an exhibition and, you know, and I think I scrambled one of the B flats, but I had learned to laugh, to smile about that. And I was like, nobody died today. And thank God I'm human. And listen to me sizzle these next notes. You know what I mean? Like just a literal refocusing mm. and a really revamping of the perspective. Number one, it ain't about you. Nobody even noticed on the recording. Even though you're playing trumpet, you think you're the leading the bus from the back and all that. No, so often, not always, but so often the whole orchestra is playing, you can't hear anything. So, 
you have 20 million strings playing that B flat, you know, and a couple of trumpets down here. So yeah, my point is that perspective is so needed. You don't get to ruin a performance. That's kind of a little bit of an ego thing. Even though you think I suck, I suck. How can that be ego? It's still ego. If you think you ruined a performance by one or two notes. So get over that and get back into the music, which has no ego to it at all. It's what is Ravel trying to say? What is Chopin trying to say? What is Coltrane trying to say? You know, so what are you, what are you saying? You know, where's your voice? And can I turn up the volume right here? And Derek, I think said something about two horns in your head or maybe it was Chris. And, you know, this is really helpful to just turn that up and like get that dialed in so crystal clear and use a mistake as an opportunity. You know, Ben, you went to at least two years of my recitals and I always came, I always played a little bit too much. <laughs> I said so much stuff I wanted to get through, but you know, eight trumpets and nine. I, yeah, actually, I, it's funny you said that because I was using that exact reference to them uh, before the podcast, just talking about how I remembered that recital and you did play eight trumpets and nine different mouthpieces. And I was just like blown away, blown away by the quality of that, that entire performance. But I said, I, I said it for a reason, not to self aggrandize. <laughs> so I recently, okay, it's been five or six or seven or even longer years since the, some of these recitals started in 20, 2007. I went back and, you know, found them. My hard drive got all messed up when I left the school and oh my Lord, they're in little things and they don't, they're not in a place. And I had labeled them all carefully and whatever. So I'm like, found them and listened to some. And I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> I didn't know to this, to like last year, then I was that musical and it sounded really great. It didn't even matter at all that I missed those notes. Like I remembered to this day, some of the notes I missed most, most of them, not all of them. Thank God. I should be a recording here because I remember everything, but, but I mean, I remember playing Antal and thinking that could never be, I could never post that. I listened to it. I thought, crap, there was like one part where the, I think three notes got put together and I was like, it was so musical and it had so much flow and rhythm. I was like, and the sound was really good. And it was in tune. I was like, what was my problem? I mean, even while I was teaching, I still had that judge thing, you know, I mean, I think it's really tough to play a recital in a, as an academic teacher with students and faculty and administration and everything. But that was just my thought. That was just my story. Uh, but nevertheless, yeah, it doesn't even matter if you miss most of the time. That's really, really true. And I did know that and I taught that, but I still had a little more to learn. Because when I went back and listened, I was like, this is all really good. <laughs> I totally have to say that. I mean, I don't have to say it, but I did. But I learned. I was like, oh my gosh, I would, I would choose that over people that play really flawlessly. That's what I want to do, and that's good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just my opinion. Yeah. And so I think that's what I'm trying to always get students to go for is connect to the voice, which is their singing, whether they're a singer, they've chosen the trumpet. It's the loudest singing instrument. <laughs> so, you know, and really just just go for it. When you play um, your piccolo and you're so groovy and you're in the dance mode of all that Baroque music, it doesn't matter if you miss 19 notes. 
And you get that from your jazz training. And I'm a huge, as you know, I mean, I, yeah, it has to be after play jazz band. <laughs> yeah. At least for the style, if not to improvise. I was super happy about that question about improvisation. I don't know if we're going to get there or not, but. Yeah. So uh, you actually mentioned it again tonight. I, I listened to a, a previous podcast that you, um, that you were on and you, you mentioned that you use improvisation as a way to compose. And I'm, and I'm curious, uh, do you, do you improvise in a performance setting in, in like a classical type setting? I'm just curious what your experience is with that. Yeah, I do that. Okay. I'm not Rex Richardson. <laughs> we love each other, by the way, we went to Northwestern and he was much younger than I, but, but I do actually almost every recital I improvise something because maybe I'm not playing the right notes and I'll make up a couple stuff and then I'll make up the B section that makes it match. So nobody will know. I mean, I do that a lot. <laughs> so short improvisation. And then I also, yes, uh, especially with my organist colleague, we've, it's mostly because I'm lazy. I just never would write stuff down. I just would rather, we're very liturgically based. So we're wanting to stay in the spirit and the flow of the music, whether it's a spiritual tune, it's all music, all has spirit, you know, and we just, it's way scarier to be in the flow and not know what's going to come out. And it still has to sound flawlessly classical. At least that's the story I'm telling myself. So yes, we do that on every concert. We do it on at least two to four tunes. And we did it on our most recent album. We actually improvised for the mics. It was so strong that they really got the message. So we left it in. And yeah, I, you know, I was trained early on, you know, so what and all that kind of stuff back in seventh grade with my trumpet teacher, we all played so what. He was a bass player as well as a trumpet player. And he played really nice, probably basic, but I don't know. I thought it was really great jazz chords. And he would comp under me lesson at the end, like last 10 minutes and sometimes a whole lesson, especially around Christmas. I remember just playing whole lessons of Christmas tunes, just improvising and I've always had a good ear for singing. I've always been able to, you know, do the harmony. So, and I don't know if I did this with you, Ben, but many years I endeavored for many years, 99 through at least 2009 to, to teach students how to use their ear by taking a simple conconi and having them mark in the chords. I would teach them how to do that if they didn't know from their theory, because it's so critical. This is a one chord, you can write in C, E, G, or you can write in one, whatever, or C, whatever is gonna work for you. Going through and there's like four chords and they have to do it over and over and over and over and over in this one page. And then, um, and now we're going to just play the bass note. It's like how you do, you know, basic, basic jazz improv. And then we would do it on a conconi. And then I would have them go from the bass to then playing some other note in the chord and having to move through in time, you know, I did it for at least a decade teaching it because I was like bound and determined to teach these people to use their ears because they were not using their ears. There just was not a connection to this at all. If I said play a G or an A, G, A, there wasn't that connection. And I'm like, you can't begin to improvise if there's not the connection, you know? So... Yeah, I don't know a 
whole lot. And I was always in Chicago when I would, when I would have to get out of a gig where I was hired well, for my loving personality and my incredible trumpet playing ability, but also the organists knew that they wouldn't have to like write out on a desk can, it would save them time and money. So I would, you know, get hired and I'd be put on all these like makeup desk cans for these 18 hymns. And then I'd have to sub out. This happened very occasionally, but I remember there was like two people in Chicago I could call. One was really awesome at it as well. Same, similar background to me. And the other was decent, but there was no one else. And Chicago is like the land of amazing trumpet players. But, and you know, there was two or three others that would do okay, but sound not like they were in the chords at all sometimes. So it was like, it just, I was shocked at that because this is a world-class city. And I was, I was never, I was like, what, how is this happening? You know, to me, it was so part of, and it remains a part of who I am as a player. And it allows you to stay very honest and very vulnerable, but communicative. Skip the authentic vulnerable wording, communicative. You're communicating in that moment the feeling that you're getting from the energy of whatever you want to call it, the universe, God, your creator spirit. You're communicating that. And boy, that's powerful stuff. So yeah, Tim and I do it. And so, you know, it's it's still within a classical context, so your your heart's beating out of your skull and everything. And even even on desk hands, I mean, I do a little out of body. I think if the spirit comes through, and I'm like, woo, I'm hanging on. But it's definitely through my training. It's my training. My mom taught me theory, and I I never know what anything's called, but I can tell you exactly what the notes are. I mean, I've got an amazing ear, and so that comes from my background, my family, my mom. But what fuels all that, and then you know, I think there's an energy that comes in and in that what you're trying to get across at that moment. And it's the same with music. Music has a purpose. Every type of music has a purpose, you know, so there's going to be something there ready to aid you if you're willing to let go of the reins a little bit, you know. That's that's really cool. Uh, I, I think I annoy the guys every time I tell this story. So I'm going to say it really brief, but I had a similar situation where my dad's also a trumpet player and we actually got a... Um, a steady gig at a Catholic church in, in Tulsa over some arguably better players because we were willing to improvise over hymns and they were not. And so I, I think it's so valuable. I think it's incredibly important. Yeah. And in the intensive arts, I don't know if we did it when you were there, Ben, but Tim Olson, my collaborator, I referenced earlier, my organist, we gave a class on how to improvise over hymns every well, a couple years, if not every year, we did it many years. And I mean, we had the hymns picked out. We had them do the, you know, bass. They had to read, they had to read bass clef, you know, the young students doing that. And, you know, other people playing melody and they had to learn how to start and stop because we were dealing with all levels of students and learning how to communicate with their organ collaborators. So we had trumpets and organists. And, you know, we told them, okay, now you can just play tenor. You can play alto. You can add these notes in here. This is all stuff you can do. You can, if there's a long note at the end of the hymn, which there almost always is, Lord, you can go da, 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 boom, and know where you're going. And, you know, by the end of that hour and a half, we had people doing it a little bit. So it is definitely teachable, especially in the liturgical context. Right. Well, I, I had a follow-up question to that. Uh, 
do, do you where do you foresee the, the role of improvisation in modern uh, composition for for classical um, trumpet solo lit? That's a great question. I just wrote this piece called Landfall, and I don't know if you guys know uh, you gentlemen know Karen Bliznik. She studied with me at Eastern Music Festival. She was principal in Atlanta, Charleston, and St. Louis. And she's now started her own recording company. And she's very young. She's like, was my student, so she's amazing. She studied with Terry Everson at Boston University. I was talking with her about my recording project and about my piece and how there's a couple segments also of my piece. I forgot about that. We improvise on that, on my piece. Not only because I was too lazy to write it down because I wrote down the rest of the piece, but because I wanted people to improvise. And it was an E major, which I think is no big deal. I mean, so we're gonna play in trumpet, B flat trumpet, and I'm like, okay, so it's F sharp major. Well, that's like a huge thing for a lot of classical players. And I'm like, first of all, get over that. <laughs> <laughs> classical players just don't do half the woodshedding as, as jazz players, it seems like, seems like, in terms of knowing their key relationships and that kind of stuff. But she said, if you wanna sell the piece of music, that I wrote, then you should put those little cue notes in of what you improvise. And I'm like, that was just one improvisation. That wasn't even the best. I'm like, you know, the one I did on the recording. Because mm -hmm. I think the organist, we had to do it again. And I was like, my other one was better. You know what I mean? And I yeah. like I had to come up with new stuff now. But you know, I had I agreed that it would turn people off from buying the piece and playing the piece if it wasn't written out note for note but i'm like improvise this is suggested only put in a harmony do whatever you know so i would love to see more of that in in the tunes that people can start to be my tunes are very tuneful these ones happen to be very tuneful very harmonically straight up I was on a broke organ. I had to deal with only nine stops. It wasn't like I was going to go crazy. So anyway, within the tunes, you know, just starting with the starting with cadenzas, let's just start there and start improvising your cadenzas, you know, at least writing them out your own. That's the first step, right? Transcribing either somebody else's or maybe yours and then playing it and then going, well, I could actually go over here and still get back there. You know, it's just a matter of stepping out and being willing to risk. It's like that clam foot coming out of the clam, that little and being willing to stick it out there a little bit and hoping the starfish doesn't come poison it or something, but just, just being willing to just do a little bit. I have a little bit of a fantasy of playing a recital. I did this with my but my oldest nephew, great, great nephew, um, was in the kitchen at my brother's and I was over in another room and we were doing a book about animals. He was reading a book and he was yelling over the names. So he would say, it was a little bit like the Tony Plogue idea, except I was doing it. And he would say chicken. And so I would make up a little, I actually recorded these and I can't find them, but I think they're all good. <laughs> but I would just make up a chicken for like, you know, page and a half. And then we would do, you know, an aardvark and I would make up an aardvark. And I was like, I want to do a recital that way. That's my dream because I don't like the computer and I still haven't gotten to where I can put stuff on it. 
you know, I have people doing it for me, but I write it out, I play it, record it, and then I write it out by hand, which is like really time consuming. But also I <laughs> computer drives me crazy in terms of everything. So I want to do a whole recital like that and just have people say, okay, just name anything, emotions, colors, whatever, and then just play. What that be and I don't know what stopped me except I don't know how to market it. Like, would people come? You know what I mean? Like, just what is this recital, you know? And of course, at this point, I'm only doing it with myself. I'm not doing it. I mean, I could probably ask Arturo. Maybe he'd come and just, he's like more amazing on the piano than he is on the trumpet, which is saying a galaxy of stuff. I know what I just said, but <laughs> he's Valdez, you know, on the piano. And then he also plays the trumpet. I mean, it's crazy. No, but I, I, I wouldn't know uh, who I could get to, uh, probably jazz people would back me up actually, but mm-hmm. I'm very classical sounding unless I switch horns. And that's my, I sound very kind of symphonic, cinematic, American, like I'm, I have a certain sound in my writing and my thinking that is kind of permeates what I do. That makes sense. Going back to your whole concept of finding your voice and Essentially, it's like your almost your purpose your, is your voice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either that, or I've actually been a scatter and put the trumpet in the case because I am too lazy to practice my jazz stuff. So I've actually scattered a fair bit with actual jazz players, and they've actually said that they liked it and they wanted to do it again. And they did it again, and, they, and I'm like, really? So I would love to do that, too, because, you know, young girls are doing it. I mean, the young, younger, up-and-coming, wonderful there's a couple of younger players doing it. I don't know how many guys are doing it. Come on. There's a there's a few. <laughs> is there guys doing it too? I would love to know about it. Benny Banak the third is an incredible singer and trumpet player. And he uh scats a lot and uh, is incredible. And great great trumpet player. Too. Wow, that's totally cool. I gotta write that down. Okay. The third. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I do it too after Derek buys me a couple of shots of whiskey. That's true. <laughs> I usually that's do it true. in the shower myself. That's true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so wonderful creative stuff. That really is like just percolating where we are in that moment and how we're sensing that relationship of the community of the audience and us. I mean, it's very, that's totally cool. You know, I'm really excited by that because it also doesn't involve any extra work outside other than just listening and singing and we're playing you know what i mean it doesn't involve that's more fun when you can just do it on the spot yeah i mean and hats off to you real jazz people that can (laughs) i have to keep my jazz to uh something below bebop level (laughs) for sure but i've i've actually been like a puckalo player i've done that too you know that's an actual term for whistling it's called a oh, puckalo cool. player. Rob McCroby is a Canadian puckaloist, and this is when you whistle. And that's been really fun. People are like, take a turn, and I'm like, okay. And so I whistle away, and that's really fun. And like whistling totally helps your trumpet playing, of course. That's we talked about that already. But I actually I did have a question about that. Are you are you connect, are you thinking like so the, the whistling and you talked about the shape of the oral cavity? I, I usually uh, talk to my students about syllables. Is that is that sort of the similar um but the same idea. Well, syllables goes back to language. So I always think when I'm teaching double tiny, you know, we can go taco, tico, taco, tico, and take out and, 
you know, I use all these words, but the vowels, I use words too, so it's not just a vowel. So if you're going to go I-A-E, I'll say father, you know, I'll, I'll use words. So I just take it okay. out of its context. I put it in a broader context so that it's something that they aren't, again, compartmentalizing into a separate thing. And then, but you said something after that I wanted to address. So, oh, so the whistle tones, you know, honestly, I think when they really came into clarity for me, it was out of necessity. I think it was the second time I was playing the Brandenburg. I only did it three times and I was like, I don't have to do this anymore. This is for Chris <laughs> Ecker and those people that just pull it out of the rear end all the time. I mean, in a good way. It comes out so <laughs> I had to do it again and I was teaching at Illinois Wesleyan and I had some very lovely practice time was so rare. I could do a lot of practicing in the car, listening, you know, driving to Illinois Wesleyan, which was in two and a half hours from Chicago. But then I'd have like an hour off between students and teaching a class. Um, and I remember that was the most amazing practice because I only had that hour sometimes out of three days. And I remember trying to play the Brandenburg and just going, there is a reason why I can't play these notes. And I realized that I was conceiving of them and knocked of below. And that when I would like my tongue had to be way higher than I thought because I was hmm. still hearing them on some level an octave below. So when I had to go all the way up, it's an octave above my paycheck is what that piece is. <laughs> the whole piece is an octave where I'm normally played as a classical orchestral player. You know, it's D and above. Who plays above there except, you know, occasionally on a pop tune. But anyway, so yeah, I had to really, I was like, oh, it's my tongue. I remember specifically I remember like yesterday, I was like, it's not high enough. Or I didn't even say that, Derek, I'm sorry. <laughs> but I said, it's not like, I'm not actually at the right pitch, you know? And I could sing it crazily enough because I have a super high voice. And I was like, <laughs> I probably started out too high. And I could <laughs> sing it. So I would always tick me off when somebody would say, you can sing it, you can play it. Because I was, I had a few other things I needed to get together I could always sing everything and it made me so angry when my band directors would say that and they wouldn't say oh your chops aren't strong enough in the corners go practice you know what I mean like <laughs> but yeah so anyway that's how I kind of came to that and then I realized students weren't making the change like if you hear a student do a downward slur you know a lot of times if they're dull sounding or they're not negotiating that they're not going and when you make them do that that's it good. takes sometimes 15 minutes of a lesson. Of course, you make it fun and do other things. But it's amazing then what they're capable of doing after they connect that. And again, it takes discipline to do that in order to play the trumpet right. Rather than they'd rather play 20 times wrong and horrible and sounding funky. And I'm really not that negative. I'm just saying that's <laughs> the way we work as trumpet players. We work really hard. Yeah. But if you stop and go off the trumpet and get the stuff lined up, then it does literally fly out your trumpet with great quality of sound. You know, 
I still do it. I remember my first thing at the School of the Arts, I was asked to do Chronicles by Turin. And I was like, thanks, Mark Norman, who's the Wynn Ensemble director now. Then I don't remember what he was doing. Maybe he was also conducting. But that was before my recital. It was the first thing people heard me play. I had to walk out on stage in front of everybody and play that piece cold. You know, I was, Woof. So I was learning it here. It was the same. I must have been learning it a couple of weeks before we did Mahler 2 with the Winston Sound Symphony, which was also my first year. And I was playing an offstage part. And I had one of the offstage friends of mine staying with me. And I was in here practicing the tune. I played about every 10 minutes. I sang absolutely everything. And it's wicked. But I was like, there is no point for me to put that trumpet up to my face because it just trashes you if you're if you don't practice eight hours a day and you have limited time to practice and your endurance is not like a Mack truck, then you can get great endurance by being incredibly accurate with your pitch putting in. And so I would just, if I, if I couldn't hear those funky intervals, I couldn't play it. And she was like, I have never, she's a very well-respected drummer player. I have never heard anyone do that. And I was like, really? This is like normal. I do this all the time. I have to save my face. And, you know, I mean, we come to what we come to because of how we're wired. But I also, I was very, very fortunate. But I also learned that that is a way that many can access the trumpet. And I wanted to address one thing Derek said. He didn't say it, it was a little bit of a side thing that I gleaned from what you mentioned, Derek, about technique. Various points in my career, I would get some feedback generally from students. Um, oh, she doesn't work on technique. Doesn't work on technique. And I was like, I always work on technique. I have specific things I do for each technique, but they're so musically based, they don't know they're working on technique. Hmm. <laughs> it's always very frustrating to me. But I mean, if you're going then you better go. And you are already better because you are doing metric pulse, which is a technique to get your technique of wind flow and pitch accuracy and when you're moving better. But it's a musical technique, you know what I mean? Or if you're working on any double tonguing, any double tonguing, and you're not. Uh, what's that? Um, that's probably at Arbenz. But, um, you know, it's so it's a long bow on the first notes because they're the strong beats. They need a lot of so so you get the ha, you get the wind because of a musical reason. You are you absolutely if you're a string player. Since five years old, you're playing Haydn and you know to go peanut butter ketchup or whatever they say when they're learning, you know, and they learn Haydn and they have all the benefit of all that phrasing that Haydn puts into everything. And we don't learn that. I mean, I did because I played piano, but with my mother. <laughs> but, um, you know, when you do those double tonguing exercises with metric pulse and elongating those first notes, then the wind has something to do. And it just flows out and people don't think they're working on technique. <laughs> like, 
no other way to work on technique in my book as a teacher and a player. I mean, you can, you can work really hard, but let's just work with our body's own coordination. That's mm -hmm. what I'm all about. <laughs> I was a basketball player. Maybe that's why. <laughs> we did have one other question we wanted to ask, and we probably have a little bit more time for that. It's what kind of changes would you like to see within the trumpet community, you know, upcoming and years to come? Uh, and what do you think as a whole we need to do to get there? Great question. So I, since leaving the school yards in 2016, and even before then, I was doing probably five to 10 master classes around the world <laughs> and a lot of them in the States. And since then, I mean, I remember talking to Ryan Anthony before he passed, he was in Winston-Salem playing Concerto for Hope. And also we did a huge Pines of Rome with like every trumpet player, 36 players. It was amazing. And I'm, Ryan and I went out to lunch with a grown student of mine. And um, he said, what have you been up to? And I said, oh, I gave six recitals with different recitals with different pianists. He's like, I'm not even doing that. Because, you know, he plays, he played similar things when he would play. Of course, he was going through eight years of chemo. And <laughs> plus, when you're a soloist, you learn to play what you know you're going to be able to do at any moment. You know, when you're a full, like a really amazing soloist. I was like, I knew stuff or whatever. But I realized, and then I said, yeah, and I, I did 20 master classes this past year. This was after I left the school. And I was like, I counted them all up. There was 20. Wow. So I say that as my non-WHO uh, approved, <laughs> not CDC approved, but my scientific method is I did do a lot of classes, even in one year, and in the last 10, 15 years, I think I can say some things I've noticed across the country in higher education, and I can't speak as much now to Chris to high school and, and middle school because I work less with that population currently, uh, or I have in the past, but the junior faculty and the senior faculty are way, way too overworked everywhere. At state schools, at well-known regents, research universities, at conservatories, unless they're the ones where, you know, I'm Tom Wolf and I play principal in the Boston, I'm just going to go and teach these four students or eight. I'm not saying he doesn't work his butt off. I'm saying he is not given the workload as somebody that's like full-time at a conservatory, but all the full-time. So the teachers are really overworked because most of my classes involved all the brass and the faculty. And it wasn't unusual for one faculty of the brass, wasn't necessarily the trumpets, to come up and say, I was playing issue, I have this and here's my workload and, and that is a huge issue. And also, and you know, I'm going to jump right down to the students because the students, and this is partly, I think it's safe to say, and true to say, partly why I left full-time university teaching. Because the students are overworked to a point of unhealthiness in many regards. And it's not, and we, I even taught for many years You've got to be able to do this. You got to be able to cut it. We cut it. You got to be able to cut it. You can't cut it. You're not going to be able to cut it. 
But as an Alexander person and as a person with knowing how we must be able to refresh, we need 10 minutes on either side of everything we learn to be able to take it into our brains. There is factual proof. Thank you, Obama, for your $10 million billion study on the brain. We have proof now. But what Mr. Alexander knew in 1890s, now we have proof of all of this, what we need in order to learn. We need time. We need pausing. It's not just woo-woo. It's not just somatic yoga. It's really how the brain works. And barely making it through. And I had students, not just at School of the Arts, at Wichita State, I had graduate students in hospitals. I, I, I ended up in the hospital my family year at the School of the Arts. I mean, I take full responsibility for part that I could take responsibility for, and the rest goes unsaid. <laughs> but I am saying, like, this is crazy, right? And, you know, Ben, I mean, the high school students were so many. I, I think it's a little gender thing. Many of the girls were so distraught, but I think the guys were in their own ways too. Like they just show it a little differently. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was so much pressure and it wasn't just there, you know, at, at Wichita state, we had students that were, you know, LOAN was a four letter word. So they didn't have loans. Um, so they worked two jobs and they were education majors and they owned their own car and their cars never worked. I mean, there's always stress in every type of situation. It doesn't matter if it's just a conservatory. Do you know what I mean? And I see that as I went around the country, the students would be in, I'd give like a, between a 50 minute to an hour and a half presentation, just experientially experiencing things about your body you may not know and Alexander and this and that. And there was such a change in the room of connection and collaboration and spirit and warmth and empathy and compassion and to themselves and to each other. And that's just, that's really rare. So I think it's critical that we bring in a health and wellness component, not just to conservatories, but to every school, and that there's more time to recognize that less is more. Like the music ed curriculum, I mean, I had mono my first year. It was nuts. I mean, I lost my dad in March and I went to school in September. I'm sure that was part of it. But also, you know, it was nuts. The curriculum even then was so crazy with how much stuff. And we had a 657 club if we weren't up at the school of music by set by 657 a.m. to practice. We had to buy donuts for everybody. Well, we didn't have any money. We were there all the time before seven. So we could practice an hour before our eight o'clock class. Our last class, we wouldn't even make it. We'd be the people would be taking the potatoes out of those steel bins at the cafeteria because it would be 6.30 after wind ensemble and they'd be already closing down the cafeteria. Mm. That was our life every day for four years. And I mean, we did survive it and, you know, we had 100% placement at Mansfield. It's a fantastic school. But the point is that's nuts anymore because when I was in school, that was, let's face it, that was in the 80s. That was a long time ago. So now with the advent of video and phones, especially the last five years I taught, so I would say from 2010, 2011, things really changed with the students and their non-groundedness and their just non-connection 
And maybe it's getting a little better because I think there's a little more awareness. But I mean, that phone is a, I use a phone all the time, but I use it as aware as I can. And I use it judiciously and I put it down a lot. And you know what I mean? But I have that ability because I'm not needing to meet the demand of my other colleagues that are my age at the age of 20. So I understand some of it feels very much like you don't have a choice, but what is that doing to, uh, I don't mean to say like I'm 90, what's it doing to your brain? It is changing the brain, it is. But also what's it doing to your ability to process and also pause. And they know that every bling takes you really out of your deep concentration mind, every bing. They know that, that's all of this has been proven. So mindfulness is an incredibly important part of self-compassion and I think it needs to be, I mean, I'm in a centering prayer group. If it needs to be in a different, you know, it can be a Christian format, it can be in any format, but it's, and mindfulness is not a spiritual thing. It's just mindfulness. But I'm saying if there's a school that needs to be another way, there's other paths too, but that's necessary. Certainly a somatic, whether it be Feldenkrais or Alexander or even yoga, but this time around every event and less, time on your face as a trumpet player, uh, almost every school is the top five kids that are doing everything, students, sorry. I mean, you know, and if it's bigger schools, it's the top 15, but the other 25 aren't doing all that. You know, Alison Gagnon, my collaborative pianist from the School of the Arts, very good friend. She's been on a time committee since before I left the school. And, you know, I made it clear when I was there that this was the only conservatory I was aware of in the entire country that didn't have Alexander Technique in its school music. And of course that was not uh, appreciated, <laughs> but they don't, they've not made any, and they have all these suggestions. It goes up to the provost, the vice provost, and then something happens. And I don't mean COVID, I mean something else. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's just one school. And I, I'm, I'm not denigrating that school. I'm saying they had the, like somebody had the vision to do that but they aren't listening to the faculty. So it's listening to those who are doing the work. It's just the same old story in America, yep. labor and management. And the students often maybe don't know enough to speak for themselves because they're just trying to get their car to work to come to school, you know, and like, it's so tough, tough with the amount of money they have to spend that they may not know this other stuff about their lives. but. But given those opportunities, I just did a little bit of a summit through, um, I mean, I was a recipient of it. I didn't participate and offer, but, you know, there's three people of color, which I found their stuff really, really effective because they'd worked with people in the prison system and people in the Baltimore city schools. And they were presenting these very valid ways of staying grounded, you know, and I think we just really need that. I really, really, really do. And again, everywhere I go, it's just, it seems to be so, it's like soaked up like a sponge, you know? I mean, I'm so grateful to be able to talk about not just that because I am still a trumpet player and I love putting it into playing the trumpet and I know, but I also know that that's fundamental. The fundamentals, <laughs> going back to that. I have a quick question, maybe just to wrap things up, but if, if you had one thing that you, you would, 
let's we'll say it's the most important thing the one most important thing for our listeners for anyone that's listening to this student faculty trumpet player or not trumpet player that they could use to either learn the discipline of mindfulness of being grounded or just uh to get better at it uh what what do you think that would be okay i don't need to talk so when i when i think i might have done this when you were there ben so when you pick up the trumpet before you go to the trumpet just be with your whole body whatever that means just be present to your toes and your knees and your hips and your abs and your back and your top of your head. So that's a pausing. And then when you go to pick up the trumpet, you can lead with your pinky. You can grasp that trumpet and feel it like it's the first time you felt the temperature and all that. You can be very much using every sense. You've got that trumpet in your hand now for years, well before I did any mindfulness work that was called mindfulness work, I would take a breath in and take a breath out. And some, some call it a centering breath. Um, but that, again, is a pause, which enables you to be here now, to be present and to like in my harried life as a teacher, you know, if and when I would pick up the trumpet in a lesson to play, I was already, I already had what I was gonna play, you know, the whole music thing was already happening. So that was going, but then there's the pause, breath in, breath out, everything's gone, judgment, time, front, back, going forward, time and lesson, whatever, all of it's gone, that one breath, and then you're in the music. So finding, using maybe those suggestions to find minute micro ways in to insert what's already there, but make it more mindful. To insert those pauses, because we have such a habit of, you know, playing the trumpet. And when we can, those transitions, that when we can be curious about them and playful with them, it doesn't have to be like, oh man, I'm mindful. You know, playful curiosity is so critical. And wondering what will happen if, what will happen if I pick up the trumpet a different way? And then I'm going to take my time. Maybe I'm going to exhale while I pick it up because maybe you have a habit of always picking it up and inhaling. Let's do the opposite. Let's see what happens. What would happen if that should just be, I should, you should have said, what's my teaching philosophy. I should have just said that. Of course I used the word should, which is pretty crappy, but that would have been great had I thought about that because what would happen if, you know, is that asking a question makes you so curious, keeps you open, keeps you in the moment And those are moments of mindfulness. And they also bring a tenderness, if I might say that in this community, they bring a tenderness to yourself and to what we're doing. Like, this is important to me. I'm not just gonna wham, bam, slam it through, you know? 
So starting, just starting, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Thank you, John Kabat-Zinn, who got that from Thich Nhat Hanh, which is the founder of Miracle of Mindfulness and all of that Plum Village tradition. So it's just starting there, one little iota, I think is very wise. You know, you can brush your teeth, you can pick up your fork, you can do it in little tiny ways, but again, be very investigative and curious and delighted by the newness of it and wonder and don't make it feel like, oh man, if I don't get this five minutes in, I mean, I just, I'm never gonna, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Just start with a little tiny bit and see what joy that might bring you as opposed to, but I have so much, there's just no way. That's a decision. That's a story you're telling yourself. That's fine. You'll get there when you get there. It's not for everybody right this minute, but whoever is open to these ideas, then this is a way to think about possibly investigating some of that. Thank you so much for joining us today and discussing these concepts. Uh, I know that we all really appreciate it, and I think that our, our listeners will appreciate it as well. We didn't really get to talk too much about your projects. I know we talked a little bit about uh, Landfall, but for our listeners, if you want to check that out, uh, you can go to her website, judithsaxton.com, and she has a ton of information there on her website, and you can find her her CDs and, and links to, to purchase those things. And if you want to have any questions, as usual, you can contact us at OurTrumpetLife at gmail.com or look at our website, www.OurTrumpetLife.com. Thank you so much. We really do appreciate you coming and joining us today. I love that it's called Our Trumpet Life because that's what it's all about. It really is. <laughs> Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you to Ben for studying that initially and to all of you for agreeing. And it's been a joy to get to talk with you a little bit, just a little bit. And now yeah. I've plumbed the depths of what you're all about. And you know. <laughs> I so appreciate just kind of put it out there. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you again so much for being here today. And a big thanks to our listeners for all of their support. That's going to wrap it up here at Our Trumpet Life. Hope to see you next week.